Welcome back, everyone, to the Krista CMS Educational Podcast. This is a series dedicated to educating our Krista CMS associates working in the field with uh, information from our medical director staff. Uh, today, we're actually going to be talking about metabolic derangements with Dr. Euler, and we will be joining in in just a few minutes. So hang tight and get ready. back we're back again dr Oiler. welcome how back do- how you doing i'm good I'm yeah good. it's been a, a little while since we've had a podcast and been back here so it's good to be back yeah yeah so um boy we just had ce days didn't we had a week of that yeah uh, had a lot of um good information that was shared with us that mci piece was pretty good and it was kind of interesting because since we just did that we just podcast, had the podcast about mci with ricky yeah. and Madonna. yeah so. So hopefully that was helpful yeah, I think it does. I think people need to uh, practice that on a day-to-day basis. So um, it definitely makes us remember all the critical pieces. And especially from here, when we look at it afterwards, you can see how things either do really well yep. or things actually fall apart. So yep. so what are we going to do today? So uh, today we're going to talk about a patient who um, has a ton of comorbidities. Uh, but basically we want to talk about um, metabolic derangements, uh, and then bradycardia. That sounds good. Yeah. I, I think it'll be really I good. I know in our, uh, what is it? Our, um, our cardiac arrest algorithm, mm-hmm. probably about a year and a half ago, we added the bicarb and the calcium to the Y complex PEA mm-hmm. side of it just for that. Yeah. Cause we were missing it. Yep. And so this, I think this is gonna be great. Yeah, this will be good. Hopefully y'all can learn from it and, um, I'm sure we'll be able to expound on this on future pod- podcasts uh, specific to each um, thing that we're going to talk about with the bradycardia and the hyperkalemia. Awesome. Well, I know we have some uh, news that uh, you had actually put on here for us, uh, some footnotes. So it looks like um, you're talking about the EMT courses coming up. Yeah, I just wanted to kind of briefly mention we have uh, some new courses coming up. So the EMT course uh, is starting on uh, July 18th. That's attentive. Attentive. Um, with uh, first day of class being on July 25th, 2022. If you know anyone interested in the EMT cadet course, uh, please have them reach out to Michael or Jerry or anyone and we can kind of help them out. The other is the paramedic course that is also going to be potentially starting around August 30th, 2022, with the first day of class actually being September 6th, 2022. So if y'all know anyone that is interested, please reach out to us and, and let us know so we can, can get them involved. There are, I'm not exactly sure. And I'll be honest, I don't know the deadline dates. I'm not sure if, yeah, if you're aware. Of I don't matter. either, but I think you're, you're telling them to reach out to Jerry. Yes. All right. Well, want to get into the case? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So you're dispatched out to a, a patient uh, after 911 is called. You are told it's an 82 year old female with a history of diabetes, hypertension, coronary artery disease, atrial fibrillation that is on Coumadin, end-stage renal disease on dialysis, and a history of hyperthyroidism. All you're told is a patient is altered and seems very weak. You arrive on scene, you find an elderly patient that is 82 years uh, old, stated age, and daughter is present giving history. Patient is unable to give any history and does appear altered and confused to you. Uh, when you approach the daughter, uh, start getting some history. She tells you that the patient woke up this morning feeling well, but after making breakfast, started having some confusion. 
and seemed semi-responsive and lethargic. She tells you that the patient was very weak when they started noticing this, had some trouble walking. They checked her blood sugar, given her history of diabetes, and actually gave her a piece of candy to eat, huh. uh, even though her blood sugar was red as high. Yeah. So on exam, you're, you and your partner, you all get some vital signs. Blood pressure is 70 over 32. She's um, got a pulse of 20, so bradycardic. She's got a respiratory rate of 12, and she's setting 79% on room air. She seems very lethargic to you. She has some generalized weakness. She's cool, diaphoretic, pale appearing. And then you notice a dialysis shunt to the left upper extremity. So let me ask you about that, Doc. So there, there's some pretty significant history here. Um, when you see this type of patient coming in, well, what are the what are the clues that kind of put that prob probabilities and possibilities over here for your differential diagnosis? What are you looking at? So this patient is 82 years old. She's got a ton of comorbidities. So the differential is going to be huge on her. So she's a diabetic. Is this something related to high blood sugar, low blood sugar? She's got a history of hypertension, coronary artery disease. Is this cardiac? Is it yeah. STEMI? Well, her blood pressure now is what, 70 over 32? Blood pressure 32. is terrible. So She's got atrial fibrillation. Uh, so is she having a stroke? She's on Coumadin. Does she have a hemorrhagic stroke? What was her pulse rate? Uh, pulse was 20. Uh, so you have to think about, you know, does she have an intracranial hemorrhage? Um, and then she's on dialysis. She has a history of end-stage renal disease. Uh, and so is it metabolic? Is it a hyperkalemia? Uh, is it hypokalemia? Is she renal, renal failure? Is she fluid overload, uh, pulmonary hypertension, uh, pulmonary edema, uh, and then hypothyroidism. Is it something like a mixed edema coma? And then just look on a, at her vital signs and her, her presentation. Is she septic? She's hypotensive. She's got bradycardia, so maybe not. Yeah. Uh, but then she's also hypoxic. So a, a huge yeah. differential diagnosis. Yeah. I don't think that we could uh, at first really narrow that down. No. So we're just what addressing life threats at this point. So I think the, the main point for us is, is addressing life threats and, and treating those of, um, as we can and getting her to the hospital. Awesome. So you notice, you and your partner notice these things. You do your exam. Uh, you notice that she is hypoxic. So you put her on four liters nasal cannula. Her oxygen does improve to 90%. You get a blood sugar of 410, Ooh. which is high. Yeah. And then you attempt to get a, a peripheral IV. Multiple attempts are made. You're unsuccessful. So decision was made given her, her you know, significant uh, um, alternate mental status, her, her uh, abnormal vital signs. You place an IO to the right tib fib. She continues to have bradycardia, but her blood pressure does improve to 113 over 90. That IO helped with that? No. Well, I, no, <laughs> no, probably no. not the IO alone, maybe. <laughs> okay. um, and then a respiratory rate of 29. Um, and then this patient actually um, was started uh, on a pacing uh, due to the symptomatic bradycardia. Okay. Um, and from what I can remember, <laughs> kind of looking at the case, um, I don't believe... I, I remember right, there were some fluids given because of the hypotension, uh, but I don't think there were any other medications given. Uh, Flight for Life was actually called pretty quickly, and they arrived on scene, and I think they started managing. Well, let me ask you this. It's me and you. We're EMS. We're on the ground. We've got a 79 saturation and a blood pressure of 70 or 30. I think together as a team, both of us could really start managing 
those key themes right there Absolutely. at the same time, right? Absolutely, simultaneously. So as an EMT, you would you could probably go if you needed to and start bagging the patient, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Uh, to try to get those saturations up while maybe I was trying to get that uh, IV, that IV yeah. or also putting the pacing pads. Mm-hmm. So it might, I might put the pacing pads on first Yeah, because I got such a slow heart rate with a low blood pressure yeah. and that's, it's an unstable patient. Yeah. That, that would be appropriate, wouldn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And, and her oxygen improved with nasal cannula. So yeah. you have that. One of you can be putting the pace pacing pads on while the medic is getting an IV. Yeah. Um, and then with her blood pressure improving after a little bit of fluids, um, now you're really worried about her, her heart rate. Okay. Okay. Cool. So I kind of want to talk about this case because of the bradycardia uh, and a patient that has a ton of comorbidities like we've already mentioned. Uh, and so <clears throat> the big thing for this patient was she was bradycardic, she was symptomatic, she was hypotensive. And she was hypoxic. So sinus bradycardia is when you have a rate below 60. Uh, and this is con- considered bradycardia. Yeah. Um, now, patients are also kind of age dependent. Uh, one thing that you have to, to think about in older patients is what medicines are they on? Mm. They may be taking a beta blocker, a calcium channel blocker. They may be on digitalis or dig. Yeah. Uh, and that can cause bradycardia, amiodarone, lithium. So medications can play an important role in bradycardic patients. So this becomes more of a toxidrome, right? Absolutely, yep. Maybe not an overdose, maybe just the body is not Mm -hmm. um, eliminating it fast enough, right? Yeah, and and in a lot of older patients too, you know, 80 80 years old, they may be on a beta blocker. So their heart rate may always be a little bit on the lower side, even if they are septic or something like that. And so that's one thing to keep in mind too. Okay. Uh, And then... Other causes include acute myocardial infarction. So 15 to 25% of patients having an MI will have sinus bradycardia. Uh, and that's typically when there is right coronary artery involvement uh, or a, a lateral, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, an inferior MI. So proximal, posterior. So like a proximal occlusion of the RCA, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Because that affects 90% of the SA node, yep. right? It hits yeah. the SA node and then you can get bradycardic. Yeah. And so uh, that's one thing to think about. Uh, there's a lot of other obstructive sleep apnea. It can be vasovagal. Uh, increased intracranial pressure can cause bradycardia, uh, which would be from an intracranial hemorrhage. Uh, this patient was on Coumadin. She was altered, weak, lethargic. Uh, so that's one thing to think about. Uh, is it infectious, sepsis? Mm-hmm. Um, there's a whole lot of other uh, viral illnesses that can cause it. Lyme disease can cause uh, a complete heart block, which could cause bradycardia. Uh, there's Chagas, Legionella, malaria, a lot of things that we probably may never see, uh, but are potential it's causes potential. of bradycardia. Lyme disease may be more. Mm-hmm. Lyme disease is definitely something that we, I think we have potential to see. Yeah. Uh, and it causes heart block and it can cause bradycardia and, and a whole lot of other systemic problems uh, in patients. The other is hypothyroidism and patients that are known to be hypothyroid, haven't been taking their medications or new onset can cause bradycardia, hypothermia. Uh, if the patient's prolonged hypoxia, that can lead to bradycardia and then any kind of long QT syndrome. Yeah. So patients that are considered bradycardic uh, are usually going to be asymptomatic. Uh, they may come in with lightheadedness. They may have uh, chest pain. They may be in heart failure. They may have some altered mental status like this patient did, some exercise, exercise intolerance, uh, and they may have a syncope episode. Um, 
So the, the main thing to look at in bradycardia is ruling out other bradyarrhythmias. So is a patient in second degree heart block or in third degree heart block? So those are patients that really need to be taken care of pretty quickly um, when they get to the hospital, from my perspective, uh, to make sure that they don't have any complications or go into an arrest. Um, most patients are going to be sinus bradycardia, uh, and then they can really be diagnosed by their history and physical. Uh, this patient, I think if you look at her, she's got a history of end-stage renal disease. Mm-hmm. She's got hypothyroidism. She had a um, history of, of atrial fibrillation. So she, uh, for me, I think this patient, I would be more concerned about her renal failure on dialysis. Has she been to dialysis? Um, with her hypothyroidism, has she been taking her medications uh, as kind of leading causes as to what she could be bradycardic from? You know, you talk about dialysis and people miss that, mm-hmm. right? When when do you become concerned when you hear the how long they miss it? Is there is there a time? Is there a measurement there? Not really. I, I've seen patients that have missed dialysis two, three sessions yeah. and they look really pretty good. Their little fluid are overloaded, but, but clinically they look well. Okay. I've seen patients that have missed one session and look terrible. They just don't tolerate it well. Mm-hmm. So it's really individual. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then with these patients, you're going to want to establish when the symptoms started, what were they doing? Are they hemodynamically stable? Um, so hypotension, altered, short of breath. Uh, these are things that really need to be treated and focused on immediately. So when we look at managing bradycardia, um, if they're asymptomatic, you may not have to do anything. Yeah. Um, big thing is going to be obtaining vital signs, getting an IV. If you can't get an IV, get an IO. And then if they are unstable, that's when we really need to act. Uh, atropine, one milligram, can be given. Uh, and you can give that every three to five minutes for a total of three milligrams. If you give atropine and they're not improving, their heart rate's still low, they're still bradycardic, then you need to start thinking about either cardiac pacing uh, or dopamine or an epinephrine infusion. If you need to do dopamine or the infusions, you need to call for med control. But the pacing, I think, is something that that we can also initially start. Um, And then really for pacing, it's going to be uncomfortable. So talk about sedation, talk about analgesia, uh, and that's something that you may need to contact med control for. Um, if a patient kind of going back to medical medication causes of bradycardia, so if they're on a beta blocker like metoprolol, they're on a diltiazem or, you know, amlodipine calcium channel blocker, uh, and you think that this is the cause of their bradycardia, like an overdose, you can give glucagon, uh, and that's three to 10 milligrams IV over three to five minutes. Whoa, that's a lot. I don't think we even have that much on we the We may track. not, but it is it is something that we that is in uh, the realm of treating these type of overdoses. So if I only have one, is it worth me? I think doing it's worth it? trying. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, and then hemodynamically stable patients, really, we just treat the underlying cause. Um, obviously, we're going to transport all of these bradycardic patients to the hospital and to the emergency department uh, for us to get to get them admitted and and treat the underlying cause. Um, so moving on to hyperkalemia, which uh, also kind of plays into causes of bradycardia, and especially with this patient being uh, in-stage renal disease, um, want to talk about that. And so hyperkalemia is is, a, is defined as potassium greater than 5.5. Uh, 
Mm. Um, and it can be caused from pseudo hyperkalemia, which is by far the most common cause. Uh, and it's often from blood draws with the red cells lysing, releasing potassium. You can get a falsely elevated potassium. Huh. Um, However, I, I would say if, if you're concerned for hyperkalemia based off of an EKG patient's past medical history, treat it. I'd rather you treat it than not, and it be a, a true hyperkalemic uh, patient. So that's actually kind of in our realm as mm -hmm. medics, that if we're seeing <clears throat> that progression, and yeah. I know we have it in our CPGs, that actually defining that whole piece from the hyperQT yep. to the prolongation of the pure interval, Mm -hmm. um, the widening of the QRS, and then eventually the peak disappears. Yep. And then you just have that really wide, yep. bizarre. So I always think of, if you're looking at an EKG, I look about it. If you were to pick up the, the T wave and yeah. you started dragging it, you would start slowly get long QT, then you start getting the peak T wave, wide QRS, and then you'd go into a sine wave. Yes. Um, and so that's kind of the progression on the EKG. So if you're seeing peak T waves and they have a history of, of end-stage renal disease, mm -hmm. I would treat it like it's <clears throat> hyperkalemia. So we give that. Mm -hmm. What are we going to see? So you should start to see improvement in that. You should okay. see closing uh, and narrowing of that QRS complex okay. uh, as that potassium shifts intracellular. So anything that we can do is going to be temporary. Okay. Um, and so these patients really either need dialysis, KXLate, Lasix, which are more permanent causes of uh, ways to get potassium off. Okay. But okay. temporizing it is is necessary because if you don't, these patients can go into an arrhythmia, V-fib, heart block. So you uh, say it's, it's a temporary fix. It's a temporary fix. How temporary are you looking? I mean, so you know, I think, and and I'd have to look at the the data and the literature, but I think with what we can do as far as calcium and then treating with bicarb, um, calcium usually lasts. I remember right about 30 minutes. Okay. The bicarb um, is going to last a lot longer, okay. but they are going to have to be redosed. Yeah. But by the time you get to the hospital, we won't have. Is that why you guys in the hospital don't typically do the calcium bicarb? You move more into. So uh, when I see a patient in the emergency department with hyperkalemia, uh -huh. um, I will treat with calcium gluconate if there's EKG changes. Yeah. Um, and then I give insulin insulin and the D50 um, and I give right? D50. I actually give two amps of D50, 10 uh, units of insulin. And then I may give an albuterol uh, yeah. nebulizer treatment. Buffer, yeah. I you guess, have more right. time when you get albuterol insulin and multiple modalities and yeah. to shift that potassium in and the bicarb helps because you go from being acidotic yeah. to alkalytic and that alkalosis helps shift the potassium back into the awesome. cell. So that's why it's so important for us to be able to do that mm -hmm. because it's so quick. Yep. And, and like I said, I think that if, if you have these, you're going to get these patients to the hospital to where we can give them other medications <clears throat> and, and get them to dialysis. Awesome. Um, so kind of getting back to the causes, there's uh, redistribution, so DKA, hyperglycemia, these patients are acidotic. Um, you can get it from cell, cellular breakdown. So oftentimes, rhabdomyolysis, crush injuries are, are pretty important as well. Burns, tumor lysis syndrome. One thing about crush injuries is, is if you have a patient that, that has a significant crush injury, mm -hmm. when you take whatever is, is on top of them off, that's going to release a lot of potassium. And so yeah. that's one thing you have to be thinking of and, and ready to, to manage and treat. So if I had this, how old is this person? Uh, so back to this 80, one, it was 82. 82. So if I had a ground level fall, 
and I'm not know that what this case you're taking us to, but if it was a ground level fall and they stayed on the floor overnight and then mm-hmm. we came to pick them up, could there possibly be rhabdo? Yes. Yeah. So elderly patients on the floor for 10, 12, 24 hours, whatever it may be, if they've been left overnight, can yeah. definitely develop rhabdo. So no transports are out on these type patients because really we have yeah. a significant issue here. Yeah. Right. I agree. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and then there's increased total body uh, potassium, so renal failure, which we've talked a lot about. There's drug-induced uh, hyperkalemia. Uh, so any medications that alter that that transmembrane movement of potassium with the sodium-potassium channels, beta blockers, digoxin, then a lot of herbal medicines. I know there's a lot of people out there that, that take a lot of herbal medications. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them that I was able to find are alfalfa, dandelion. Dandelions. I heard, yep. I've been reading about those. Yeah. yeah. Uh, horsetail, milkweed, and nettle mm-hmm. are some common ones that can cause hyperkalemia. Then there's reduced aldosterone secretion. So your ACE inhibitors, your ARBs, angiotensin, uh, receptor blockers, NSAIDs, heparin, antifungals, cyclosporin, tacrolimus. Those are some of the medications that can do that. And then there's blocked aldosterone binding to the mineral mineral corticoid uh, receptors. So right. spironolactone, potassium sparing diuretics, Bactrim, and Pitamidine. That's a mouthful. Right it there. is, absolutely. <laughs> uh, so a lot of these patients that are hyperkalemic are going to be very weak. They're going to be lethargic. They're going to have some fatigue. They may have paresthesias. They may have nausea, vomiting, palpitations, chest pain. They may have a, a bradyarrhythmia, heart block similar to what our, our patient in this case did. And so knowing that, and when you see these patients, kind of you need to have, have a, a keen awareness of, of the potential for hyperkalemia and what it, can, what it can lead to. So the important piece is getting an EKG. Um, if you see peak T waves, you see a prolonged PR interval, shortened QT interval, Potassium starts to be about 5.5 to 6.5. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if you have a wide QRS, flattened P waves, your potassium is about 6.5 to 8. And then when you start to get into the, the sine waves and V-fib, heart block, your potassium is typically greater than 8. Um, I know we won't have the potassium levels, but it's important to review EKGs and look at these different changes because we need to treat based off the EKG, right. uh, based off the EKG and the history. That's good. I don't think a lot of people know that. And so um, if they had to take a little bit of time to study just mm-hmm. that, those pictures that we actually put in the CPGs yeah. with that value, I think that's going to give And to look at other EKGs, that. you know, if you're, if you're at a station and, and have time, some downtime, which I know everybody's busy and, and it's, you're out seeing patients, but if mm-hmm. you have some downtime, it's great to review things. So and EKGs these, is a good one to review. These treatments what we're looking at is something that we're doing when they're symptomatic mm-hmm. with with those TWG. Yes. So if they're asymptomatic, we're just watching it. And I would I would almost say if they if they're asymptomatic, but you're seeing and they have a history of renal failure uh-huh. and they have peak T waves starting at a wide QRS, yeah. I would still do calcium gluconate. Okay. Um, and and think about maybe bicarb because okay. if they progress into sine waves and, and arrhythmia. You're behind the eight ball. Okay. Okay. Well, that's good to know. And that's and, and if it's not the issue, is it 
that big of a deal that we gave the calcium and bicarb no. to these patients? In my opinion, no. I think the calcium is is better to give than not. Okay. Um, okay. And it stabilizes the cardiac membrane to help prevent it from going into a, an arrhythmia. Okay. So if you don't give, if if you're not if you're not seeing wide QRSs, they're asymptomatic, but you see peak T waves mm. and you have high suspicion for hyperkalemia, if you give the calcium, I think it's okay. Okay. That's good to know. Um, so kind of management to these patients, um, we're going to get vital signs. We're going to work on IV access, whether it's with an IV or an IO. Um, and then the big thing is we've talked about a few times is stabilizing the cardiac membranes. Um, and that's, if there's any EKG changes, which I talked about with the peak T waves, wide QRS, um, or if they're having an arrhythmia. Um, so our protocol is to give calcium gluconate one gram IV or IO over 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. This can cause some hypotension and that's due to the osmotic shift, uh, intracellularly. Um, and if you are on a prolonged transport, sometimes these <clears throat> will have to be redosed. Uh, like I said, I, I'd have to look at the exact data, but I want to say it's about 30 minutes or so okay. um, to where the calcium starts to, to metabolize and wear off. It's interesting that you talk about the calcium could cause some hypotension because I've actually seen calcium actually help with the blood pressure. It can. It can. It can. Absolutely. Um, so calcium it helps with contraction of the musculature. Mm -hmm. And so it can lead to some uh, hypertension, not hypertension, but help with hypotension. So, but the, I think it's with that shift. That shift is a little bit longer. Mm -hmm. So, okay. So it's not as acute after the giving the medication that you would see that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and then um, you want to shift the potassium intracellularly. So our protocol is, uh, 50 mil equivalents of sodium bicarb, and that's IV or IO, slow push. Then we can do albuterol, 2.5 milligrams, uh, nebulized, continuous with a max dose of 15 milligrams. That's a lot of albuterol. That's a lot of albuterol. So I read that was the S isomer that's in there that mm -hmm. actually causes the shift yep. for that albuterol. Yep. And, and like I said, that's a temporary measure, like I said earlier. Uh, but it, it's temporary enough to where you can get them to the emergency department in the hospital. Um, I've already mentioned repeating calcium gluconate, um, and then sodium bicarb, um, which is for progressive widening of the QRS complex. Um, so calcium, kind of one side note, calcium and sodium bicarb cannot be mixed due to precipitation. Uh, they have to actually be pushed separately within a saline flush, uh, between dosing. Cause have you ever seen what it does? I have not actually. Uh, we we played with it in the lab one time, and it makes it look like jelly. Really, when you mix yeah. them up. Uh huh. <laughs> so I was I wanted to real quick. Um, I didn't write it down, but the treatment for um, the bicarb, um, which I, I I did mention was 50 mil equivalents IV IO uh, slow push. Yeah. Just want to make sure I emphasize that. Um, and then serial EKGs, uh, to make sure that it's uh, your T waves are improving and not progressing. Um, and then real quick, I'll talk about hypokalemia. Uh, so hypokalemia is proportional to the degree of hypokalemia, mm. uh, and the duration of reduction in that serum potassium. So normal potassium is 3.5 to five. We typically don't see anyone that is symptomatic from hypokalemia until the potassium is less than three mil milliequivalents per liter. Yeah. 
And isn't the critical lesson 2.8? Yeah, it, there's differing uh, uh, information on that. And yeah. So 2.8, some say 2.6. Um, yeah. I've seen 2.5. Yeah. I, I would say if they're symptomatic, then... What's, what's symptomatic? Because I know somebody's this has happened to, so I wanted to hear from you because it really um, threw me. Yeah. So, so patients that are hypokalemic, uh, some kind of the clinical things that they'll present with are weakness, yeah. cramps. So, so they they actually can have their chest tight, mm -hmm. right? Yep. Which would make me, as a paramedic, think maybe I'm having they're having some kind of acute coronary syndrome, yep. right? Yeah. Right. They said they can't breathe because their muscles are what they're contracting. They're, they're contracting. Yep. Yeah. Um. In in a case like that, I, I we wouldn't know that they're hypokalemic. Yeah. Uh, so I would still treat it as a for our test pain protocol and yeah. ACS and get that EKG. Um, and there, there are, and I'll talk about it here in a minute. There are some EKG changes that you'll see in patients that are hypokalemic. Okay. Um, so that's a great one is the, the cramping and that kind of the contractions of your muscles. Mm -hmm. um, they may come in with an ileus. You may have some PVCs, PACs. They may be bradycardic. You may see them in arrhythmia or complete heart block. Um, then there's ventricular tachycardia and fibrillation. Yeah, that's like um, 1.8 or less. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, it's really low. Yeah. Yes. Um, so getting to some of the causes of hypokalemia, there's the intracellular shift, uh, which is the opposite of hyperkalemia. So these are usually alkalytic. Um, so every um, rise in your pH of 0 0.10, which I know we would never know right. um, pre-hospital, uh, but it's good information to well, know. Maybe if we are doing inter-facility transport. Exactly. That is true. Yeah. yeah. Actually, we yeah. pick up on something that was missed, maybe. Yep, absolutely. So every rise of 0 0.1 will uh, decrease your potassium by 0 0.5 milliequivalents. And so some of these causes are insulin, um, beta agonists, uh, hypokalemic periodic paralysis, which shifts potassium intracellularly and can lead to some paralysis and neurologic findings. There's decreased intake, so a lot of your chronic alcoholics, uh, patients that aren't eating. Then there's losses of potassium, so increased loss from vomiting, diarrhea, uh, patients on diuretics, uh, patients that are hypercalcemic or have a low magnesium. Then increased sweat losses, so heavy exercise, heat strokes, heat exhaustion, um, which you think about rhabdo with mm -hmm. heavy exercise, heat strokes, and then even fever can, can lead to it as well. And then there's medications just like there is with hyperkalemia, uh, antibiotics like penicillin. Then there's lithium, uh, there's levodopa, patients with Parkinson's, theophylline, insulin, barium, quinine, and catecholamines. Uh, and I mentioned, talked a little bit about EKG findings with hypokalemia. Uh, and so some of the things that you may see are ST depressions. Mm -hmm. uh, you may see a U wave. Um, you may see QT prolongation and you may see PVCs. So I would kind of like I talked about with hyperkalemia, I would really look at some EKGs um, and you can Google it and it'll pull up EKGs of hypokalemia, hyperkalemia. Uh, that way you can really review these and, and know what you're looking at. Good deal. So managing uh, a patient that's hypokalemic, really the, the best way is to replete the potassium. And there's a, a, a lot of studies out there and a lot of information about how to do it. Um, typically when I see a patient, 
when I see low potassium, I think low magnesium. So I'm giving pa patients potassium and magnesium together. Okay. Um, I know that's not something that we have on the trucks and typically we won't no. do, um, but these are just to kind of make you aware things to look for in other electrolyte abnormalities other than hyperkalemia. Yeah, unfortunately, if it's not there, we can't put it in. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> that's, yeah. Um, so for us, really, it's about monitoring the patient, observing the patient, treating any arrhythmias and then mm. treating the bradycardia per RCPG, which we've already talked about. And then real quick, I want to talk about hyperglycemia, hypoglycemia. We see a lot of um, blood sugar problems, a lot of diabetics. So hyperglycemia is defined as a random plasma glucose greater than 250 milligrams per deciliter. So that's what we're going to use as, as hyperglycemia. Okay. So when we see these patients, we have to think about DKA, HHNS. Most of these patients are very volume depleted and dehydrated if they are in DKA or HHNS, uh, which is hyperosmolar non-ketotic state. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're usually depleted about three to six liters. Um, which is a lot because they're urinating a lot trying they're, to get rid of it yep, right yep they're but, spilling so much blood sugar, so much sugar into their urine they're peeing it out yeah but with the hhns mm -hmm. um you're not going to see the cushmall type respirations that you would with dka because they're not producing the ketones probably not no most of most patients that are are in a hyper hyper osmolar non-ketotic state yeah uh, are very altered they may be comatose um, and their blood sugars are typically in the thousands. That's what I was going to say. I thought I'd read somewhere that you start suspecting that mm -hmm. when you see levels greater than like yeah. six to eight. Yeah. hundred. Yeah. 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 And really, you know, for us pre-hospital, it's about starting fluids. Yeah. We suspect DKA, getting them to the hospital. Uh, and then when we get to the hospital, we can differentiate DKA versus HHNS based but off of labs. Those HHNS patients, their acuity levels are very, very, very sick. Very sick. Oh, yeah. Very sick. Sometimes these patients and the higher levels might need to be intubated, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. And that would actually support their condition? Um, it, it, typically, it will. I mean, as far as from a respiratory standpoint. Okay. The okay. problem when you intubate a patient, especially if they're in DKA, is is they're very tachytonic. So they're breathing yeah. rapid to breathe off a lot of that CO2. And so we have to, if we do intubate these patients, match it. we have to match what their respiratory yeah. rate is or we're going to make their acidosis worse. Yeah. And okay. so that's one thing you have to think about. But but if, it, if a patient needs their airway protected because they are altered comatose, then... then airway is is number one that volume really surprises me three to six liters oh yeah and, and most patients with hhns are even more volume depleted than that wow uh, so our protocol really is is about treating uh the hyperglycemia with fluids and so if we have a blood sugar that's greater than 300 milligrams per deciliter we treat the dehydration with 10 milliliters per kilogram uh, bolus of fluids and then transport to the hospital so we can once they get to the merge part, we can manage their DKA or, or HHNS. Okay. And then hypoglycemia is defined as a random plasma glucose less than 60 milligrams per deciliter. Our protocol, uh, if we have a patient that is less than 60 milligrams per deciliter, to get, is to give 25 grams of dextrose IV or one milligram of glucagon IM if we do not have an IV. Uh, the 25 grams can be given by D50 or infused by D10 and 250 milliliters to meet that required glucose. And then the main thing is going to be monitoring their blood sugar, repeating blood sugars to make sure it's improving and redosing as needed. Uh, and then 
in patients that are alcoholics, if they're malnourished, um, we can get thiamine as well. And I think we have that on. We do. We do. Yeah. It's always been a question on if we always give thiamine or is it only with a suspicion of that? Uh, malnourished so I think if, people if, or... if there's a known alcoholic and uh -huh. they're hypoglycemic, um, definitely need to give it thiamine. Okay. Um, and, and malnourished, I would probably do the same thing, but an alcoholic thiamine needs to be given before the, the glucose Okay. or with the glucose. I'm sorry. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. So I hope this was kind of a, a good review of some things for y'all. Um, if there's anything that y'all noticed or, or heard and, and wanted more information on or clarification, or if I misspoke about something, um, which is likely impossible to happen, um, please let me know so I can, can correct it, uh, or clarify anything. Well, I just want to say again, thank you. Everything that you bring to the table, I'm getting feedback from people. Um, they were asking because we had CE days and then we went on vacation mm -hmm. or I did. Yeah. And they were like, where's the next one? Yeah. And I was like, oh, wow. Yeah. So people are excited about um, what you're doing. They're saying they're listening to it. And sometimes I'd like this one. I'd probably have to listen to it about three yeah. or four times because yeah. there's really some good stuff, some technical stuff in there and yeah. some things that would help them make decisions on how to treat some of these metabolic good. arrangements. Good. And I, I know we don't go into a lot of detail from a time perspective, um, but I, I kind of want to hit kind of a broad scope of things and then what our CPGs are and then give you the, the, the encouragement to go and review things on your own and, and try to learn more about each thing as you can. And that's where emails come in. Cause they could definitely, when they get in that spot where they're trying to figure something out, yeah, they can ask us. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Awesome. Well, I guess this is another one yep. down, right? Um, so we will definitely be bringing you more podcasts in the future and, uh, we will talk to you later. See y'all later.